When it comes to working in technology, there might not be three bigger names to be associated with than Microsoft, Intel, and Amazon. But while those are some of the most successful companies over the past 30 years, they won't always scratch that entrepreneurial itch to make an outsized impact. Nittenbot is a dynamic product management executive who has worked in tech behemoths, started his own company, and helped drive the product vision for high-growth startups such as Smartsheet and Quiet Platforms. In today's episode, we discuss what makes a great product, what he learned working at Microsoft, and why their leadership has been key to sustained success, emerging trends in HR technology, and how you hire with intention. Nitten is someone I have known for years now and has been an advisor and friend, so I was so grateful to have him come on our show and share his vision and insights. Looking forward to everyone getting a chance to hear this episode and learn as much as I did. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we are joined by Nitin Bhatt. Nitin is the founding partner at Factorial Advisors, but he's had a long career working for some of the biggest technology organizations in the world like Amazon and Microsoft, and most recently at Smartsheet and Quiet Technologies. You are a product leader extraordinaire and somebody that I consider both a advisor and friend. And so I'm so grateful that you're here, Nitin. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Oz. Thanks for the opportunity. Excited to be here. Awesome. So I want to start here. Okay. You've worked like we talked about Amazon, Microsoft, some of the biggest technology companies in the world. You were there at very formative times, right? Amazon really kind of getting off the ground. And, and then I would say Microsoft as they went through this reinvention. And then you've gone into what I would say is more of the startup community. What drove you to working in companies um, that were nowhere near the scale and had the level of resources that the, the companies you started your career earlier did? No, uh, thank you for uh, this is such an insightful question, Oz. I just realized recently, I've been part of history. When I was thinking about my career recently, I had a chance to um, uh, be at a professional setting when I was reflecting about my career. And if I think about it, Amazon, I was at Amazon from 2011 to 16, where there was a tremendous amount of this growth in uh, Amazon retail, as well as Amazon web services, where I was part of both the journeys. And from 16 to 19, when Satya Nadella had uh, become the CEO of the company, and in one sense, the renaissance at Microsoft, once Balmer had left, and Microsoft's journey from $300 billion market cap company to a $3 trillion market cap company. And... I think I've just been extraordinarily lucky. Yeah. Were so that, you there during the transition between Bomber to the, okay, so what changed? I'm really interested. What changed in that timing? Uh, so I will take you back a little bit and then I think I'll un unpack this uh, for the listeners and the viewers uh, for this particular question. Um, I was at Microsoft till 2011. And I was at that time from 2005 to 2011 during Bomber's time and Microsoft had done and made it was a of course it is a it is a giant company making tremendous strides in different businesses they had microsoft uh, they had actually windows azure which was coming in and at that point of time uh i was working on something related to azure called the open virtualization format i'm one of the authors of that and this is this this was supposed to be one of the big industry standard we adopt in the company but one of the things I realized in 2011 in Microsoft that we were not really ready to embrace the open standard or the, uh, the open source kind of the world of it, because we were talking about interoperability, we were talking about Linux, we were talking about a lot of these things. And the dispensation at that point of time wanted 
Azure to be more Windows centric, which which was probably the right view, and that really didn't align well with me. And, and that's the reason I went over to work at Amazon till 2016 for five years. So I personally wasn't there when uh, Balmer left and Satya took over. But once I came back, I was in the Azure team, the Azure compute team, and I saw very closely how Satya and his leadership actually had changed the company to embrace Linux more openly, to think more, uh, and it had become a more customer focused company, to be honest with you. And uh, I think that those two things, uh, the, the third thing being the company lead, leading with a lot of empathy and listening rather than talking about itself. I think those three things were very big transformation in Microsoft's journey. I know you asked a bunch of questions. I'm kind of answering that in part. So this was the answer to your question on, and we'll, we'll I think this is an interesting topic. We'll, we'll unpack this further as we go along. I also wanted to answer one of the previous questions you asked me that after working in the big companies, Intel, Microsoft, Amazon, why startup? Around 2016, 17, I realized I had worked for 13, 14 years in the big companies. And um, I had never really done something uh, smaller. And at that point of time, I was getting exposed to a lot of smaller companies, ideas. I was getting exposed to helping them as a volunteer. And I decided to do my own startup around uh, 2017. So I started off with the germ of an idea to uh, solve the gun problem in schools. So that's how the idea really started. It was oh, a, wow. and my daughter had just, um, she was just born. And as a parent, I was worried about uh, school shootings. And that kind of led me to uh, Soteria. And uh, Soteria obviously did not succeed. The company did not succeed. But the learnings I had uh, while building the company, the problem solution fit, the product market fit, how to ask for funding, how to build a team and company, I think that was an amazing learning. And once I had done that, uh, it gave me more confidence to go into smaller companies. So in uh, 2019, I formally moved to Smartsheet, I, which was smart. Uh, Smartsheet is a publicly traded company, of course, uh, but in scale to Microsoft was a smaller company, um, Microsoft and Amazon. And I had a tremendous run there for three and a half years. Uh, and then uh, leaving Smartsheet to go to quiet platforms where I've been there one year. And again, um, really strong, uh, really strong, resolve to change the market, change the perception, change the dynamics of the game. I think that is really something which motivates me now that how can I move the needle? How can I make an impact? And rather than what is the title I'll get, I think playing the infinite game rather than the finite game. I think that oh. that's how I would summarize it. You know, I love the infinite game. So a couple of things that I that I'll bring up that resonate with what you said. So first going back to Microsoft, I think that's such great perspective to understand because the company, listen, Steve Ballmer has had a lot of success, particularly financially, as he owns the, the Los Angeles Clippers, as you and I both know as NBA fans. Um, but his 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 reign at Microsoft was very different than what it was with Bill Gates and obviously with Satya Nadala. I think Satya is one of the great leaders of our time. And when I look at the relationship of his, with his son and his leading with listening and empathy that you talked about has made one of the biggest transformations into a company that would really kind of rested on its laurels in a lot of way and really rested on its market cap and reinvented it to, to be what it is today with that 3 trillion market cap. Now, I, I think it's an incredible example of great leadership. 
um, and how you can fundamentally change some of these big organizations that are like aircraft carriers and certainly don't turn on a dime, but with the right leader and with the right values and, and then the vision that he had, it can happen. And so I think that's amazing. It's amazing that you were there and you got to see kind of both of those two different type of, of, of organizations. And I think that's, that's great. The next thing that stands out to me is your own startup. You went from a large enterprise organization to your own startup. And then you started moving into these companies that were no longer the fortune 100, you know, who's who of technology school shootings is something that, um, yeah, that, that, that issue, that topic resonates deeply with me. I live in Parkland where Stoneman Douglas is two miles away from my house. Um, obviously when that happened, um, there was something that impacted me and our community deeply, um, and so that's something that really resonates with me. And the fact that you were trying to build technology, even though, you know, that the company no longer exists, I see that obsession. I see that passion. I see how that can drive somebody to want to build technology that can solve some of the world's most audacious and big problems. So I love that. And then I think it's one of the biggest transitions you can make is going from these large enterprise environments to what made you successful there was very different in some of these companies. So what was the transition like for you when you went to Smartsheet? Was it an instant success for you? Did it take you a little bit of time to evolve what made you successful in the previous companies and even as a startup founder to, to there? No, that's a great question. I also wanted to share one insight about uh, Steve Ballmer. I think Steve Ballmer is a phenomenal leader as well. I think a lot of people uh, may not give him as much credit because once Bill Gates left the company, the day-to-day -day functioning of the company, getting a company to make billions of dollars of revenue with a very high healthy margins of profit close to 70, 80%. And this was also during 2008 to 2011, during the recession time. I actually think Balmer needs to get credit for that. Hmm. Steve Balmer also should be credited for Azure because if a lot of people may not know this, Steve Balmer was the CEO of the company when Azure was greenlit or also for successful businesses like SQL. I think history is going to be uh, uh, kind to him because he he created the foundation on which Satya built. I think uh, I would, of course, Satya is a superstar and I think the kind of person he is, I think there is a personality kind of a difference between Satya Nadella and uh, Balmer, but I would also give a tremendous amount of uh, kudos and um, recognition to someone like Balmer who actually created this uh, giant uh, for Satya to build on. So I just, just wanted I, to- I really appreciate that perspective because a lot of times when you're reading back historically yeah. about Microsoft and its ebbs and flows, I don't necessarily know that he gets that credit. And I yeah. appreciate you pointing that out. That is great perspective from somebody who was- on the ground floor there and, and saw it kind of firsthand. So I love that. Go so, ahead. Yeah. So that, that was a part one. Uh, let me, let, let me come to the piece on uh, you were talking about the journey skills, right? Going from an yeah. enterprise organization that translate into organizations that aren't that same size and scale. I think the biggest one for me, when I, when I came into Smartsheet was this mindset of a founder that uh, what I had done is, I had done Amazon, I had done Microsoft, I had done Intel, and then I did my own company, failed miserably, uh, was not able to raise the, whatever money I was trying to raise from the VCs. And um, when I came into Smartsheet, I actually joined as a senior director uh, and I had a very small team. And uh, frankly, uh, I had to prove myself. And there is also a story there. Um, I had an offer from Smartsheet before their IPO. I, I, I couldn't join them at that point of time because of a lot of these reasons. I was busy with my own company and you know I had just become a father, so I was busy with that. And once I had come into Smartsheet, I think I had to prove myself. And I think this journey, the biggest thing which helped me was this uh, mindset of a founder, that there was no task beneath me. 
there was each and everything I could do to help run the business. For example, there was a line of business we had created called the smart sheet for government. I actually was involved in sales as well, even though my remit was doing the product management and the engineering, but I was very deeply involved in the sales, in the pre-sales, in the training, in the connectivity with customers, because it was my problem. As a founder, there is no task which is beneath you. I was very much involved with how sales was going to work and happen. And I think that understanding the details of how your software is getting made or done, of course, is part of my skill set. But how software is getting sold? What are the kind of problems the customers have in their big, uh, you know, in their big enterprises or their small enterprises? Having a better understanding of that, coming, coming, coming at it from a customer success perspective, I think that really helped me a lot. So I think the biggest thing for me was learning and unlearning. A lot of people say learning itself, but sometimes you have to unlearn a lot of things to be successful in a new environment. So the things I had to unlearn was the kind of things what I had done, the big playbooks I had run at uh, Microsoft or an Amazon and the millions of marketing dollars which were at my disposal. I had no such thing at Smartsheet at my own startup. So I think your mind thinks differently. So you have to unlearn as well as relearn. I think those are the two. If I had to summarize, unlearning, relearning, having a founder's mindset. And number three is... Uh, bias for action that getting things done and getting it getting things done the right way i think those three were the biggest ones for me in uh whatever success i could get at smartsheet yeah i love and, to say that I, I think things might have been completely different had you not founded your own company and yep. learned the lessons that helped there that really helped you move into that next phase of your career um, and how fortuitous that is. And I really love what you said about unlearning because it it is about growth mindset. It is about getting better. But there are things that, you know, ultimately, like, and I look at this at our company today, right? With the famous line, what got you here won't get you there. And a lot of times you have to unlearn some of the fundamentals of the things that took your business to a certain level to help it really scale and get to that next level. Sometimes you have to do fundamentally opposite things that you did that got you to, 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 to one state of success. And so I think that's a really important attribute for people to not just be able to have, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. And sometimes you have to unlearn some of the things that ultimately made you successful and can, can get in the way um, if you don't keep an open mind um, yeah. and recognize the differences in, 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 in whatever the environment is or the timing, or whatever it may be. So I think that's, Really good stuff. Let me ask you this. You are a, a chief product officer at some of these companies. You've been heavily involved with product um, throughout your career. Not everybody who's listening is, is in the SaaS world and understands really kind of the differentiation between product and technology and, and, and how most organizations have those separated. Help us understand the differences between the two kind of areas and, and, and where they come together. Let, before that, I think there is also one thing I would love to share is as a, as a, as a leader, you also have to be fearless. That is a very strong attribute that uh, whenever you are conceiving something, whenever you're taking a new initiative, if as a leader, you're not fearless, your teams, your stakeholders, the ecosystem around you would not have the confidence to go and get something done. And I will give you one quick example before I dive into the uh, differentiation between the product and the technology piece, because I think that will bleed into the question as well. So one of the things that Smartsheet I had done was to lead one of the biggest acquisitions uh, of uh, at, 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 of Smartsheet during that tenure. This is in public domain. Um, we acquired a company for $155 million at the height of the pandemic. I was the person who was leading the due diligence, the product, 
the search and everything for that. I was working for the chief product officer and the chief strategy officer. I remember very clearly uh, before that I had tried to successfully acquire, unsuccessfully acquire a company. So I was not really starting off from a pedestal. So people had their doubts. And I had tremendous amount of confidence and faith that we have to do the right thing for the company, even if it is COVID, that this is the right time to buy a company. And I think having that level of confidence with the due diligence and preparation, and of course, the right level of math, that is a very important thing as well, as you think about, I think, yeah. um, success. I wanted to cover that. So let me come to the piece on, as you were talking about, what is the difference and how do you actually think about it? When you think about product, the first part of a product is actually what is the problem you're trying to solve and what is the solution associated with it? So think about a problem solution fit. When you think about Airbnb, what is the problem Airbnb is trying to solve? Airbnb is a two-sided marketplace, which is trying to solve problem for travelers who are wanting to have an experience. And it's also solving the problem for property owners who want to make extra money while they have a property, right? So they have both their set of problems. And the solution is, Airbnb gives them a trusted marketplace wherein a traveler can trust a, a property owner as well as the platform which is giving them the uh, capability to rent a property, to give money and you know transact using that platform. Similarly, for the property owner, they know that no one who's going to come to their property is going to vandalize their property. So I'm just giving this as a simple example. So it's more about a problem solution fit. Once you have a problem solution fit, how do you actually get to product market fit? Of course, there is a lot of research. There is a lot of, um, it's almost like uh, a craze about product market fit. But I, but I fundamentally believe the core thing for product is actually the problem solution fit. The first part is the problem solution fit. And the second part is once you have a product that how do you actually get to the market on monetization, go to market and things like that. So these are the two parts of the product area. And when you, even before you go to the, problem solution fit, this is more about the conceptualization that who is the customer, what are they wanting to solve? Why do they care? How are we going to solve the problem? And when are we going to solve the problem? So that is the realm of the product side. When you come to the technology side of it, technology is frankly a set of tools or ecosystem to actually help a company get these kind of uh, solutions to an existing problem or help a product gain its market. So as you think about these axioms, the problem solution fit, the product market fit, and how technology helps connect potential customers to a particular product and help them monetize. So I think that's how I would connect it. And a lot of times people use AI ML very interchangeably. Oh, everything is AI, right? Everyone is an AI these days. AI is a solution. AI is a solution. AI is not the problem. A lot of people say when you talk to entrepreneurs, oh, what are you doing? I'm doing an AI, oh, I'm doing an AI company. Actually, that's a very bad way uh, to think about being an entrepreneur or think about being a business. The right way to say is, hey, this is the problem I care for. I want to solve this problem and I want to solve this problem using AI. For example, um, we, have a, uh, we have people uh, wanting to solve problems of discovery. In, in the legal system, that's, that's an example, right? Now, they want to know about if someone is going through a court case, for example, they want to know about all the uh, attestation, the documents, the workflows and things. AI is a possible solution where you can get all the metadata or all the 
data about your key code dates, the key people, the, um, the, the attorneys, the paralegal and everyone who's working on it. AI can be a solution, but saying, oh, this is AI I'm going to do. I think that's, that's how I would separate that out. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say AI is a feature of a solution, but I would say that, you know, one of the things that we're seeing a lot of right now is a lot of companies made a rush to be AI companies and there was a lot of funding. And then we're starting to see a little bit of a crash there because if you don't have a moat around yep. your AI, if there is not a differentiation around your AI that can't be mimicked, you can't just build something on top of, you know, ChatGPT, open AI and say, this is the newest and greatest software because that's so replicable, right? Okay. And and for us, and, and we've talked about this a lot, you know, we have a hiring solution that we think is fundamentally going to transform the way hiring managers make more certain decisions around outcomes for people that they bring into their team. And AI, and what I like to call augmented intelligence, is going to be a big part of the feature set that gets them where they want to go. But it's not the reason for the for the for the for the product. And at the end of the day, what's really going to differentiate us is the R and D that we've been doing for the last 12, 13, 14 years around what makes hiring optimal. What is the best secret sauce around that that finding the right algorithms around making these hires? And so we feel very strongly that even though AI is a big part of what we're doing, it's the um, appetizer or it's the silverware that goes with the meal. It's not the entire meal. And I think a lot of companies that made a rush to just push out technology and say, we're, we're, we're building AI to solve X. Um, I think it might've been foolhardy. And I think we're seeing that through investment. I think that we're seeing that through consumers. Um, and I think it's just really important that whether it be your UI UX or whether it be your IP that you have tied to your AI, or you've built some sort of secret, you know, uh, algo that, 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 that makes things happen in a better and faster and more differentiated level. You know, those are the things that are going to be the AI companies that really transform and change things. 100% agree with you. And it's also AI is not something which was discovered yesterday, that a lot of these algorithms of whether it is classification, and this is Amazon had done a random, uh, you know, random forest algorithms back in early 2000, 2000s, or also things like uh, algorithms which are based on regression, classification, neural networks, a lot of this is not new, this is old. I think the core thing for any company and like uh, really fortunate to be associated with you in the work you are doing in Aeon is it's the key things what you said. It's about the precision. It's about the accuracy. It's about the user experience. It is about the moat. What is the kind of problem you're solving uniquely? Because if you're like anybody else and um, also the things like data, you have petabytes of data of this, uh, this problem from multiple years you have solved for customers. And I think not every company has that kind of data. Uh, they don't have the ability to clean that data, normalize that data and use it in a way which can help uh, cover the segments you are going for. 100% in agreement. I love that. So let me ask you this. What are the, you know, a great product when you see it, right? I'm sure you're an early adopter of a lot of technology. You've gotten to see and touch things, I think, before most consumers have, right? And to your point, AI has been around for a very long time. I think the difference now is that it's, it's somewhat democratized. We put it in the hands of consumers to be able to play with and build on top of and do different things at a level that we didn't see, right, two, three, four years ago. What, when you're looking at a product, right, stands out to you? What do you think are the features of an amazing product? Oh, this is, this, this is a really hard one uh, because there are so many of them. I would just summarize the simpler, sim simpler sure. one that we can go into as we go. The first one is um, actually the least amount of friction. Mm. I'll just give you an example. Think about Google Maps. Anybody, right? Anyone who is someone uh, like a 10-year-old to someone who is 70 years old, 80 years old can use something like a Google Maps. The ability 
for a customer or a consumer to use a product without any kind of friction. It's not asking for a username. It's not asking you for a credit card payment information or anything like this. Or maybe it's paid or not. I think we can discuss or debate it. But I think just having the least amount of user friction is hallmark of a great product. So that is number one. Mm, number that. two is uh, prime time user experience. Why do you use the product? That does it create a habit within you so that you want to use it multiple times a day? Think about any great product you use. The, the reason that product becomes great because you it becomes kind of a dopamine hit for you to go in and use that product um, again and again. So that would be the second hallmark. That is a great user experience that you can get your task or whatever you want to accomplish in the shortest possible period of time with the great amount of information, which is right. Free. So that would be the second one. The third one is also around association. I'll just give you an example. A lot of times you might be using Google Maps to go to a destination, but you also use it for search. You say, hey, uh, you go to Google Maps and you search Indian restaurants around me. I don't think maybe Google Maps was supposed to be this entry point for people for putting their search query for restaurants. It probably was that you can put that search query in Google search and through Google search, it will actually make you move the maps. But maps has become such a uh, primitive in your mind that you actually go and type this in Google Maps. I'm just giving this as an example that a lot of times these associated use cases actually make it uh, prime time for you to solve the problem. I love that. I think that's an amazing answer. Um, I really like. I, I think we both read the book, the book Hooked. The way it talks about the dopamine hits and the way that that, that people keep coming back to some uh, to a product they love. Um, there is there, there's a downside to that, but there's a certain like addiction that comes with it that just you love to be in that user experience. You love the outcomes that come with it. And I think the association component is one that not many people think about all the time, but I think it's a really brilliant insight on your part. So I love that. I got I to gotta make sure we stay on path here because That's we're right. a hiring podcast and I know you've done hundreds of hires throughout your career. So we want to hear a little bit about what your philosophies are, what's memorable for you, things like that. So let's start here. Yeah. What is your overall hiring philosophy? When you're hiring somebody in your team, what are you looking for? What's important to you? Or maybe what's not? What's a deal breaker for you? What, what, what's your hiring philosophy when you're hiring somebody on your team? Oh, okay, that's that's a really good one. Uh, the primary one for me is uh, the ability to assess a candidate, whether it is a technical for competency, whether it's a technical competency, functional competency, soft skill while you're considering how they align with the culture and values of the company. Um, and there is a long-term potential for success as well as um, growth. Uh, while keeping in mind, uh, there, is, there is, while keeping in mind this whole process of hiring or interviews is professional, it is courteous, and it's without bias. Mm. A lot of us are, we may not even know it. We, we actually have multiple kinds of biases. It's about confirmation biases, recency biases, similarity biases. There's a big amount of study which has been done on this that how those kind of biases can influence a, um, influence an interview on a process. Sorry for a long-winded answer to your short question, but frankly, that's that's what my hiring philosophy is. No, I mean, that's listen, when you're talking about bias mitigation, you're talking about hiring experience, you know, you're talking right up my lane. So I love it. Uh, you can talk about that all day. When I ask you about a memorable interview experience, whether maybe you were interviewing for a role or you were interviewing somebody, could be good, bad, don't have to name names. What yeah. comes to mind when I ask you that? 
the most memorable i i actually think uh, it was uh, when i joined microsoft for the first time so this was 2005 uh, i was a chipset uh, i was working in the chipset division at intel in device drivers and uh, chipsets and i saw software was the future and this was before anderson horowitz said you know software is going to eat the world in 2010 maybe i was the real oracle anyways uh, so <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. I won't tell Mark. You're good. Hey, don't Go tell ahead. Mark. Yeah, don't tell Mark. <laughs> uh, yeah, just just coming to Microsoft and interviewing with Microsoft and Microsoft uh, at that time and even now it was the ultimate software company. That uh, experience of meeting the most humble, most talented, world class engineers. I think it was phenomenal. They treated me well. They uh, they acknowledged my work, what I had done in uh, power management, device management, device drivers, and I think. they were curious about me they asked me really hard tough questions about uh our, our data structures algorithms software i loved that experience i think that was that was phenomenal i think that my time uh, as a candidate as an interviewer i would say uh, amazon amazon uh, spends a lot of time and energy making sure um that these biases don't creep in into their interview experiences I was very lucky to be a bar raiser at Amazon, and very quickly, what a bar raiser at Amazon is uh, is some someone like a cultural ambas cultural ambassador, and these cultural ambassadors are normally the top performers in the company. They are nominated by senior leadership and pe your peers, so it's kind of a honorary title, and uh, you get to safeguard uh, the culture and the ethics of the company. and i think that is a really powerful position to be in that you mean you ensure that the candidates have the right kind of experience that the questions or the loop how it is set up it is diverse kind of a loop and we are without biases i got a chance to do more than 500 interviews for amazon during my 5 years and i think i think that is something i will never they are one of the most memorable experiences for me um in my professional life the companies that are the best at hiring treat interviewing like a privilege. Yep. Most companies just let's grab a few people and let's uh let's have them ask some questions and we'll go from there. I know Facebook, I know Microsoft, I know Amazon. There are people that they look at as their main job, like you said, cultural ambassador yep. or interviewer that they want being the face of their organization to potential new employees. And I think yep. that's such an important thing. And there's criteria around that and there's preparedness around that and enablement and tools around that. the best companies in the world put a lot of effort and resources into this and so I love to hear that the other thing I'll say is Microsoft has come up on this podcast multiple times as a place that does a great job interviewing i remember somebody told me that they flew in to to uh Seattle um the car rental when they went to go rent their car they already knew that they were coming in they gave them a package they had like all these different things for them it was just such a unique experience did they do anything unique in terms of your interview outside of just being really super smart humble people or was there anything that that really stood out to you in the process uh, it's also i i did it way back in the day in 2005 so i think it's almost 20 years back but yeah i think similar kind of experience the good part is in the tech world uh, even amazon i think facebook a lot of these companies uh, treat that prime time because the uh, people you're trying to get are force multipliers if you get the right people they get you the right level of results so i think it's in best interest of both the employee and the candidate that this is a you know you give it your best at the end of the outcome is not guaranteed but at the end what you want is brand equity to be created for both the company as well as the candidate so I even if that. you're not getting the job stay in touch with the hiring manager be respectful 
I try to understand what why it didn't work for you. That is what I always tell the just because you heard a no today doesn't mean um, there is a no for tomorrow. So That's you know awesome. sometimes it's a timing thing and other things. So yeah, I would yeah, also. Yeah. So, so much positive talk about Microsoft on this podcast. We do have openings for a sponsor. So if, Mr. Nadella, if you're listening to this, just let us know. We're happy to use Teams. Happy to jump in here. You can join our friends at Celsius and sponsoring the Higher Learning Podcast. I, I'm kidding. I, yeah, actually, Microsoft, Amazon, I think uh, uh, Smartsheet, all the companies I have worked with, I would uh, I would strongly say, you know, uh, those are the kind of companies, even like when I worked with them, even now they do so much for the community. It's just not uh, a lip service. So they- That's why we connect the way we do. We, we prioritize the same things. We understand the importance of people. And we understand, I love how you say force multiplier. The right person yeah. can, can mean everything to a company, whether it be a startup or even whether it be one of these large enterprise organizations. So we're totally aligned there. Do you have a favorite question that you love to ask in interviews? I have multiple favorite questions, but, uh, but I normally, what I tend to ask is, um, it's a it's a it's a mix of both hard hard you know question to assess their hard skills and soft skills but normally i would ask something which is more open ended so you understand uh, uh, you get a better perspective of candidates uh, abilities or their experiences or cultural fit for example one of the things i would always ask is um, describe a challenge you had in your previous role um, how did you overcome it um, what I learned from that is how do people see problems? Do people see problems as an opportunity? Are they humble enough to admit where they went wrong? I, I always think when people are humble to say, hey, this is where I went wrong, it shows a lot of courage that, you know, it's okay to fail. I think having that confidence that you could fail and you could come back again tells me more rather than all the success stories. Uh, I think success is a very lousy teacher and failure is not. So I think those are the kind of experiences and uh, questions I tend to ask people more where they can talk about how they overcame something, whether positively or not, you know, not, that's not the point. What is their journey happening? Um, how do they, how do they handle difficult conversations? How do they work with someone who's not aligning with them? I think a lot of times uh, the work we do is a very collaborative, subjective, as well as a creative kind of work. So it's not, uh, it's not like absolute math or absolute calculus. So the ability to work with people, the ability to overcome problems, the ability to uh, see these blind spots and overcome them is a very, is a very, is a big, big, uh, uh, big advantage for someone who is coming in having those kind of skills. So yeah, I, I think those are, those are the kind of questions. Uh, what I also love to see in uh, people is how do they keep themselves up to date? How do they learn new things? Are they curious? Not just about the hottest things on the planet, right? AI, ML, right now, if everyone on LinkedIn is the thought leader and expert on AI and ML, but it's like, you know, going a layer deeper, not just talking at 30,000 feet, that can someone talk at a 300 feet level or a three feet level, right? So can you walk the talk, right? You know, that's a very that's a very important thing for me. All right, listen, then you said everybody on LinkedIn is an AI influencer. I feel seen right now. Are you are you talking about <laughs> one of my latest posts right now? My gosh, man, just coming at me, savage. No, no, no. I, no, no. What I mean is, what I mean is, uh, and again, to everyone his own. Um, if you proclaim yourself to be a leader, I think that's it. it kind of is. Uh, 
presumptuous. I think what not not a leader in that space, just a guy giving opinions on what I see. Yeah, I, I, no, no, not about you. I think what I'm saying is a lot of these uh, self-proclaimed uh, leaders, and and there's nothing wrong in saying, oh, you're a leader, you're a thought leader, and things. Uh, it 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 just makes me chuckle. I'm like, um, you know, the world should say you are a leader. The world should say, hey, you are an expert on this. Um, totally and I think that's where sometimes uh, platforms, uh, there is a lot of optics also, which is going on that, you know, yeah. I'm with you. We're, we're in the golden age of thought leaders right now. There is, there's the <laughs> thought leader coming out of every crack and crevice at this yeah. point. So I'm yeah. totally with you. If yeah. I read one more list post or tweet, I'm going to, my head's going to explode. Um, all right. We all end interviews kind of in a similar way, right? We ask, what kind of questions do you have for me? What are, is there maybe a memorable question that somebody's asked you or what are you looking for when somebody's asking you questions? What do you want to hear? What, what's some advice for people that might be interviewing that would, would help? So is a question when people are interviewing, I'm the interviewer and they ask. And you ask at the end, what kind of questions do you have for me? What do you like to hear from potential candidates? The biggest one is curiosity. Curiosity about the role, curiosity about the company. Why are they interested? And asking me about what is, what is something I'm doing right now, which shows intent, which shows engagement, which shows some kind of uh, homework. I appreciate that in people when they have done their homework before coming for an interview or a conversation. That Love is that. also appreciated, yeah. Totally agree. We've talked a lot about HR technology and what's lacking out there and what's lacking for whether it be hiring managers or the interview process or interview management. What do you think, is out was lacking in the HR technology world. What, what, what do you think is something that um, is maybe the next frontier in this space? That's a that's a great question. Uh, the biggest one, the biggest three four three four pieces which are not completely cracked for me is uh, getting getting the right set of candidates for the right roles. I think that relevance, not just based on keywords in a resume, but based on a some kind of a social graph search based on their LinkedIn, what is their GitHub, what is what have they actually done in the world and how relevant it is to my job. So that is the part number one, this lack of relevant uh, skills and pipeline connection to the actual jobs is number one. Number two is this, this workflow tool which can manage the candidate experience. Of course, there are a lot of tools in the market. I don't want to name any one of them, but the challenge with them are they are cookie cutter tools. They don't give hiring managers, recruiters, candidates great amount of transparency or great amount of power over how this experience should be. And I think that is that is a very big gap right now in terms of interview scheduling, interview feedback, what are the people going to be on the loop? How are you assessing? I think it's very, it's very tight. It's not very flexible at this point of time. So that is number two. Number three is also that how do you assess once a candidate is onboarded and hired if they are successful attributing it back to how interviews actually help them or did you make a decision bad decision and they there is no tool which tells you that today it's kind of a rule like a russian rule you're just taking chances on people and yeah oh this works. speaking out. of confirmation bias i mean <laughs> if it works out then you look back to the interview and be like oh i'm so glad we asked this yep. this and if it doesn't work out you yeah. go the opposite way. So I'm totally we, with you on that. We, we pride ourselves so much on uh, data-centric, insight-centric. Frankly, this is such a big blind spot. And the fourth one is, uh, you know you know this about me, uh, Oz. I'm a big believer in having uh, diversity as a strength, inclusion as a strength. Uh, 
the tools of today actually don't do a great job making sure that you are encouraging people from diverse kind of backgrounds, not just diversity of gender or diversity of a specific type, diversity of thought, diversity of backgrounds. There is so many of these things which you need know, to be thought through. Also inclusiveness. How are you actually making sure that the loop which is set up is inclusive? And I think that set of, that set of functionalities is completely missing. I, I do think, uh, uh, you know, a uh, lot of people are working towards that, including you. I would love to see that come out in public domains and companies, both Fortune 100 and Fortune 500 and the smaller companies can actually benefit from uh, tools and platforms like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm speaking from a biased perspective, but I think that HR technology in particular, whether it be the right end-to-end -end solution, whether it be, you know, I, I feel like it's been a laggard in a lot of ways. I think there's so much opportunity and so much excitement. And one of the things I am excited about with large language models and, and machine learning and artificial intelligence is that so many things that have been overly administrative or things that have um, not been happening, being a real co-pilot for hiring leaders and for HR, there's such opportunity for transformation and change. And it couldn't be more important, in my opinion, right? Creating more certain outcomes, right? When hiring, when drafting players to a sports team, when bringing people onto your team and making sure they're going to be additive to your objective and goals, I think there's a big opportunity there. And obviously it's why I'm obsessed with it and why I spend so much time thinking about it. Um, but I, I, I'm glad that I'm in an area where there's such a blue ocean that's still available. Um, whereas in a lot of areas, I'm not saying that all technology has been invented, but there's there's a lot more maturity. And so I just, I think there's a big time opportunity for there. And um, I'm excited with a lot of the things you said. So it gave me a lot of thoughts and a lot of ideas. Let's wrap up here, Nitin, a couple of things. Um, now you were most recently at Quiet Platforms. You're getting ready to start a new role. You took a little bit of a break. So I, I actually want to hear about this. What have you been able to do during this break that you didn't when you when you had you know a day to day work that you had to be at every morning and what have you that's really gotten you excited? That's gotten you juiced? No, I think uh, I think one of the things I wanted to do was come back towards a public company. I think that that is something I will I will uh, announce in in the later later part whenever that becomes public. Uh, just taking this time to reflect and what I really wanted to do was a very important thing. And the second thing is I, I love, uh, you know, if not being an entrepreneur, but being part of the ecosystem. So I continue to be an investor advisor to the companies who are in my portfolio. I think that is something just getting that time to spend with the ecosystem, meeting the VCs and the people I've been working with. So I think that was a really big part of this uh, time, I was really, uh, you know, uh, able to find for myself and to figure out what I really wanted to do next. So that has been something which has been, I'm really excited about. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll keep you posted on uh, where I land up next. That reflection time, that ability to look inward, that ability to not have to run around and put out another fire and, and, and worry about the next, next task or responsibility that can be some of the most exponential time for any thinker, any leader, any entrepreneur, any technologist. And so I'm grateful you got that time to sit back and think, because I think it's going to really help you uh, wherever you land next. Um, all right. So I want to ask this, any bit of career advice that maybe you didn't have early on in your career that you know now, that maybe for some of our younger listeners or listeners early on in their career that, that you would give? The biggest one I would say is uh, network. Network a lot. And I will I will talk about my personal story when I was younger, I was very shy and net, and I was a developer. At that point of time, networking was seen for someone who are business people or something which is done by salespeople. Developers don't do that. Uh, the power of uh, networking is, is 
is almost like the phenomenon of compound interest. The kind of people you meet, you have to invest time and effort in building a strong network. And it's also give and take relationship. It's not just you take from your network. It's also you give back, you volunteer, you teach back, you give, give back to the community. I think just the advantages of discovering people, their strengths, opportunities, areas where you are weak on. I think networking would really enhance your learning and propel you into the next phase where you are super uncomfortable and be uncomfortable. So I think those are the two things I would say. Be uncomfortable yeah. in the areas you are, take on new challenges and network a lot. I love that advice. Millennials, millennials, you heard it here from Nitin. Don't listen to Drake, no new friends. Listen to Nitin, make tons of friends, network, learn from people. That's been something that's been a big accelerator for my career. There's so much knowledge and experience out there. And I just, I'm an open book to all of it. I want to learn. I want to meet great people and, and, and people who've been where I want to be. So I think that's amazing advice. And then I also think getting comfortable being uncomfortable is an important part of doing anything with any level of um, terms or greatness on at stake, right? You got to be comfortable being uncomfortable because certainly there's no such thing as a great rise. That's just a completely smooth journey. So I think that's amazing. Um, Last question for me. Yeah. How many games are your Los Angeles Lakers going to finish behind my Phoenix Suns this upcoming year? 10, 20? Uh, I think every season, the best part about every season, it starts from it's a new beginning. And I'm, I'm absolutely, absolutely sure Lakers is going to do wonderfully this year. And uh, when we are going to lift the trophy this year, I'm going to give you a call. Oh my okay. goodness! Well, I'm going to tell you what we're gonna uh, we're gonna meet up in LA and we're gonna get a game together for for watching our two teams play. And you're certainly gonna be hearing from me via text when it happens. So, Nitin, I really appreciate you coming in. Thanks so much. Good luck in your next venture, and thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Go Lakers! Take care. <laughs> Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.